we're going to be in Australia today, so it's going to be pretty hot there. We're going to be talking about a few of the explorers. Now, exploration in Australia really... <laughs> um, Australian exploration really took two very distinct parts. There was the exploration by sea, discovering the, the perimeter, as it were, and there's the going into the outback and discovering that. But we're going to be talking about the latter today. I don't mean to belittle in any way the tremendous work of the sea captains who discovered the coast of Australia. Captain Cook, Matthew Flinders, Van Diemen, various others. But today we're looking at explorers on foot. Burke and Wills. Now their trip was a long trip. It was a pretty dreadful trip. Was it a case of incompetence? Was it bad luck? Or was it a bit of each? Well, I think we'll be discovering in a few moments. We're going to be looking at Stuart. He was a very great explorer and adventurer. He never lost a man on any of his expeditions. He did virtually kill himself, though. Not quite, but very nearly. And then we've got Sturt, Captain Charles Sturt. Uh, old Harrovian, good, well, solid, reliable sort of leader. He was fixated, absolutely fixated, that there was an inland sea in the middle of Australia, a saltwater sea, and he was determined to find it. But it'll come as no surprise to any of us that he didn't. Uh, but we'll hear a bit about him as well. Now... The story of these all intertwine in the history of Australia, as we'll see in this fascinating tale of incredibly tough people and equally tough terrain. That's just a little bit typical. Now, Robert O'Hara Burke, he had a thick beard into which he dribbled copiously. He was also a remarkable character. He was of average physique and ambled around town with his trousers half falling down and a big Australian hat pulled over his eyes. I've not been able to discover whether he really did have corks on it, but uh, on a hot afternoon, he'd usually be found in his garden reading a book beside a muddy pond, always wearing a pith helmet. When he had money, not very often, he certainly knew how to spend it. And when he was bored, which was frequently... He would ride 30, 35 miles to the home of one of the local magistrates just to annoy him by swinging on his gate. People spoke of him as a careless daredevil, as kind and generous and not quite sane. He was, in 1857, the 36-year-old inspector of police in the town of Castlemaine in the state of Victoria in Australia. Burke was certainly a man of many parts and not a prime candidate to be an Australian hero. He was widely travelled. He'd been born in St Clarence in County Galway in Ireland in 1821, the second of seven children. He was said to be educated in Belgium, but it turns out that he only went there when he failed all his exams uh, at home and had to disappear off to do them again. He'd been in the Austrian army and had a duelling scar to prove it. He'd been a policeman in Ireland before emigrating to Australia and had apparently been considered one of the decent policemen in the Australian gold rush. Now, despite his eccentricities, he was reasonably well-educated. He was certainly well-read. He was a talented linguist, 
who decorated his office with quotations, one of which, his own of course, said, do not read anything on the walls. <laughs> he was often not available, disappeared off. The townspeople just thought he'd gone off for a few days and nobody seemed to mind or blame him for it at all. He was a highly respected member of the town's community, really, albeit somewhat eccentric. Uh, he was hot-headed and sentimental, and a friend of his once said he was the worst bushman I ever met. All of which makes it rather surprising that the Committee of the Royal Society of Victoria decided that he should be awarded the honour of being the first person, or at least the first non-Indigenous person, to cross the continent of Australia from south to north in 1860-1861. It was a journey of around about 2,000 miles each way by the time they'd got lost a few times. And it was across unknown terrain in tremendous heat, of course. And he was uh, going to be leading a group initially of 19 men. Now, maybe it was his quiet Irish charm. Perhaps it was his military experience or possibly his rank in the police force. The committee who appointed him certainly felt that his somewhat odd traits would be tempered by the team, the team of scientists who were supposed to be accompanying him. Maybe it was his attitude to danger and his bravado, but whatever their reason, the committee chose him to lead the expedition. My personal theory is that with such a sparsely populated country, there weren't very many to choose from. But anyway, in 1858, he was elected by 10 votes to 5 to lead the expedition. He was awarded £9,000 to equip and run the expedition, a figure that would never be anything like enough. 25 camels were purchased, and along with three sepoys were obtained from India, together with a similar number of horses. Wagons were built that, when the wheels were removed, became boats, and the party was armed with a large number of guns and rockets. They had special heat-resisting hats, fishing lines, boots, beds tents and surgical equipment. They carried eight demijohns of lime juice against scurvy and, wait for this, 60 gallons of rum for the camels. <laughs> <laughs> and if you believe that, <laughs> yes, I had no idea that camels drank that much rum. They carried substantial quantities of uh, dried and preserved food the party with all of these things departed from Melbourne's Royal Park on the afternoon of the 20th of August, 1860. Burke had been appointed as leader of the opposition with a chap called Landles, who had brought the camels from India as second in command, and William John Wills, always known as Jack, as third in command. Landles only played a very small part in the expedition because just eight weeks after the start at Benindi on the Darling River... He had a massive argument with Burke and went back to Melbourne and subsequently returned to India where he died in Calcutta at the ripe old age of 32. Wills was promoted to second in command. He was a 27-year-old Englishman, a partly qualified medical doctor and a trained surveyor. He'd suffered poor health when he was young where his father was a doctor. He'd been born in Totnes in 1834 and as a young boy had been very ill with a fever. This caused him a slight stammer, which he kept for all of his short life. He was homeschooled by his father, then went to school at 11. 
He was always known as Jack, as I said, and had a thick, tawny-coloured beard when he grew up, an unusually clear complexion, and it is said, extremely expressive eyes. Unusually in those days, he was an atheist. His father bought Australian mining shares and had intended that the whole family would go to Australia, but Jack's mother objected to this, so the two sons, Jack was by then 18 and his younger brother Thomas was 15, were sent out there and soon got jobs as shepherds. Later their father came out to Australia. I have no idea whatever became of the mother. They all moved to Melbourne, then to the mining town of Ballarat, where Jack became a digger in the goldfields. His father worked there as a surgeon, and Jack sometimes assisted him. He also studied surveying and got various jobs as a surveyor. As we heard earlier, Willis was appointed third in command of the expedition, then promoted to second in command less than two months after the start. Now, Burke's orders for the expedition were very vague, and almost all the route was left to him to decide. He was told to forge a route north from Melbourne to the Gulf of Carpentaria in Northern Territory. He decided to take a pretty direct route across Cooper's Creek. Burke was aware that a rival explorer, John McDowell Stewart, we'll be hearing about him uh, a little later, uh, was soon to depart on a similar trip from Adelaide, so he was anxious to press on quickly. Stewart was a really accomplished explorer. Getting back to Burke's party, they left Menendee on the 19th of October in something of a hurry. Speed was the only priority, and it was starting to cause friction amongst the explorers. Some of the horses had slowed them down, so he sold the lot before leaving. Any of his men who complained about the fast pace were fired immediately. If any of the officers protested, their resignations were accepted on the spot. The townspeople of Menendee had warned Burke that it was dangerous to cross the 400 miles of hot, dry, arid countryside to Cooper's Creek in the summertime, but he carried on regardless. Several of the party were left at Menendee and told to catch up later. When they left, there were just eight men with 16 camels and 15 horses. The remaining six men were to follow on with the remaining animals and supplies. Now we come to the advance party. There were four men in the advance party who play a pivotal role in the expedition. That's, of course, apart from Burke. There was William Wright, who was a semi-literate bushman, who was thought at the time to be reliable and who'd been hired as a guide. William Bray was a well-educated German who'd worked in the goldfields and sheep stations. The third was John King, a 21-year-old Irish boy who'd left the army and come to Australia from India with the camels. The fourth was Jack Wills, who'd established a close friendship with Burke and, as we know, was now second in command. Burke's group pressed on northwards towards Cooper's Creek, crossing the desolate plains and rocky outcrops, but water wasn't a problem at that time. Wright was uh, sent back after a couple of hundred miles to show the rest of the expedition uh, the route, which had anyway been marked carefully, and every campsite had a tree marked with a large letter B, presumably for Burke, and a number in it in Roman numerals. Burke was so impressed by Wright's bushmanship that he sent a note with him, promoting him to third in command, the hierarchy was terribly important to them. He might even have promoted him to second in command, except for the fact that Wills was so useful to him. Wills was indispensable, in fact. 
He was always the first to spot a water hole, a hill, a tree, or anything useful. Burke wrote in his journals, Mr. Wills is a capital officer, zealous and untiring in the performance of his duties, and I trust he will remain my second as long as I am in charge of the expedition. It was Wills who kept the journal, but he never questioned Burke's authority and always checked with the leader what was to be put in that journal. Charles Sturt had been to Cooper's Creek 16 years previously, but it hadn't altered. It was a small creek, partly dried up and really just a trickle of water, but there were some deep water holes. When the rains came every 10 years or so, it would revert to a fast-flowing river. There was vegetation along the banks and there were birds and fish in the deeper parts. It was hot though, it was well above 100 degrees Fahrenheit or about 40 degrees Celsius in the shade. And it teemed with flies and mosquitoes. There were rats all over the place, but other than that, it was a good place. <laughs> Burke camped here and marked the numerals 65 LXV on a nearby Kulabar tree and waited for Wright to return with the rest of the party and with their supplies. He boasted that it had been a picnic party so far. By mid-December, Wright and the rest had still not caught up, and Burke decided that he couldn't wait any longer. There had been thunderstorms and signs of rain up in the north, so he felt that it was too good a chance to miss. He split his party yet again and pressed on northwards, with just Wills, King and an ex-sailor named Charles Gray, who was a dependable bushman. Bray was left behind with the others to follow on if Wright appeared in the following few days, and otherwise to stay at Cooper's Creek until the advance party returned from the north. Burke guessed that it would take about three months to get to the Gulf of Carpentaria and back. It's a journey of about 1,400 miles. But if Bray's supplies ran out, he was to head back to Melbourne. Burke took rations for 12 weeks, and as he left, Bray called out, Goodbye, I don't expect to see you for at least four months. Which makes you wonder why he only took three months of supplies, but there you go. <laughs> at first, everything went well for Burke. The ground was rough and monotonous, the heat tremendous and the flies dreadful. But they marched by night and slept during the day. They found water and food for the camels every few days, then on the 22nd of December reached what Sturt had called the Stony Desert. Wills felt that it wasn't as bad as he'd been led to believe and wrote, I do not know if it arose from our exaggerated anticipation of horrors or not, but we thought it far from bad travelling ground. And as to pasture, many a sheep run is worse. Four days later, they left the stony desert behind them then on the 9th of January, 1861, Wills wrote, traversed six miles of undulating plains covered with vegetation, richer than ever. Several ducks rose from the little creeks as we passed, and flocks of pigeons were flying in all directions. By the 30th of January, they'd climbed a series of thousand-foot peaks, the Selwyn Range, and were struggling through boggy ground alongside the Flinders River. They were only 30 miles from the coast. The explorers Gregory and Leichhardt had previously explored southwards from the Gulf of Carpentaria, so the last part of Burke's journey was not over completely unknown territory. In essence, he was just linking up the middle bit between Sturt's exploration coming northwards and Gregory and Leichhardt's coming southwards. But it was much more important than that. He'd 
crossed the entire continent. The area Burke had reached was fertile and very pleasant land with a lot of wildlife, and the Aborigines were happy to guide him to water holes. They didn't quite reach the sea. Burke decided that a couple of miles away was quite near enough, so he marked a tree, CXIX 119. The journey hadn't been very difficult. They'd taken four months to cross the continent and had one month of provisions left for the return journey to Cooper's Creek. Burke decided that with a bit of rationing, they could reach the creek before Bray left for Menendee. The journey back, though, was not as easy as the journey out. The rains fell almost constantly, making travel much slower. By the 7th of March, they'd covered only 100 miles in about five weeks and were feeling very ill. They had dysentery and probably malaria. Wills noted that they had a helpless feeling of lassitude that I have never before experienced to such an extent. Gray was the worst affected, and they had to stop for him to catch up frequently. By the 25th of March, they'd got through the Selwyn Ranges, but still had the majority of the journey ahead of them, and they'd already been travelling for 40 days. The wildlife that had been so prolific on the journey northwards all but disappeared, and all they could find to supplement their rations were plants mostly portulac or portulaca, a hardy desert plant that's part of the same family as purslane. Gray was in charge of their rations and one day was seen to steal some extra flour for which he got, I quote, a good thrashing. There was no way they could calculate how much had gone missing, but things had seemed to run unaccountably short. They started to slaughter their animals for food. They could only carry a certain amount of extra weight to gorge themselves on the rest. They abandoned all the equipment they could to try to increase their pace, but the rains continued to slow them down. When it wasn't raining, they experienced sandstorms, especially as they got further south. Visibility was often just a few yards for days at a time. They straggled on through the stony desert, taking turns to ride on the last two camels. Seven days later, having crossed the desert, Gray died of exhaustion and starvation. The rest of the party were so weak that it took three days to dig his grave. They marked the spot by hanging a rifle from the branches of a nearby tree and dumped everything they possibly could, keeping only the bare minimum to get them the last 70 miles to Depot LXV 65. They kept a compass, a barometer, two spades, a small amount of dried meat and some padding that had originally been intended to make the ride on a camel more bearable but was now used as bedding. They didn't have a tent as they'd uh, slept under the stars for the whole time of the trip. On Sunday the 21st of April, they had just 30 miles left to go. Burke, Wills and King got up early for the last dash to the depot. A very, very hard day's walk, even if they'd been fit, which they certainly were not. But the prospect of food and company spurred them on. Wright would have arrived there and would be able to offer them everything they needed. The journey was painful and totally exhausting, but the end product would make it all worthwhile. Meanwhile, Bray, who'd been left manning the depot four months before, had seen nothing of Wright, who was the one who was supposed to be catching up, and he was supposed to be bringing the, the slower members of the expedition. Without these men, there was very little food, and he felt he couldn't last much longer. Bray had built a stockade to try to keep the Aborigines out and stop them stealing food and equipment. Of more concern, though, his gums were getting very sore, his joints were getting very stiff, 
and his legs hurt. He didn't know it, but he was suffering from scurvy. Bray had been living off a diet of salt beef and pork, rice, flour, sugar and tea. In the earlier days after Burke had gone north, there was plenty of food, so he hadn't bothered to kill any game or collect edible plants. Then after a while, there just hadn't been any to collect. Besides, he was still expecting the rest of the party to arrive with supplies. By mid-April, Bray decided that he had no option but to return home. He buried his excess provisions and left a note saying where he was going and set off for Menendee. Burke, King and Wills, meanwhile, staggered into the camp on the evening of the 21st of April and found a note on a tree saying, Dig three foot northwest, 21st of April, 1861. They'd missed each other by a few hours. They uncovered a box of rations. They thought about chasing after Bray, but soon realised that according to the note left with the rations, Bray had six camels and 12 horses, all in good condition. So he'd be moving at a much faster rate than Burke, King and Wills could do in their exhausted state. The 400 miles to Menendee would not be the picnic they had spoken about on the way north, as large sections of it would be waterless and could only be crossed with animals in top condition, unlike the two surviving camels of Burke and Wills. They decided to head west along Cooper's Creek, then strike south to Mount Hopeless in South Australia, where there was a police station and easy travelling to Adelaide. Bray's box contained food for a month. They could manage about five miles a day, and they were about 150 miles from safety. They decided they could just make it. Burke wrote a note and buried it in the same spot as Bray had buried his. He announced that they had had made it across Australia and where they were heading. Burke and Wills were understandably infuriated that Bray had gone off. But the thing that upset them most was that, that he'd taken all the spare clothes. Their trousers were so tattered that, as Wills delicately put it, they were in a very awkward position. They were equally annoyed at Wright's non-appearance as Burke had given him clear instructions to return at once with a support group, but four months had elapsed without him turning up. Before leaving Camp 65, Burke propped a rake he'd found there against a tree to indicate that they'd been at the depot. On the 23rd of April, that's two days later, Burke, King and Wills moved off down Cooper's Creek. At first, progress was good with enough water, supply of food and they met Aborigines who gave them food in exchange for fish hooks and the like. Three days after leaving, Wills wrote in his diary, I believe that in less than a week we shall be fit to undergo any fatigue whatsoever. He added that the camels were in good shape and were able to do anything asked of them. A couple of days later, one of the camels sank up to its neck in mud and they had to shoot it and take whatever meat they could from it. Soon after that, they reached the end of Cooper's Creek and the waterholes. On the 8th of May, the other camel died. It was shot and butchered like its friend. They continued, meeting some more Aborigines who showed them how to prepare flour from Nardu seeds that grew wild in that area. They also trapped birds and rats as food. Now we go back to Bray. Uh, He was the German, well-educated German chap. He was heading south from 65, and before long he met Wright on his way north to the depot. Wright was rather vague about the reasons why he'd not arrived months before. 
They seem to include an assertion that some of Burke's cheques had bounced. He'd had no reply to a letter he sent to Melbourne asking for confirmation that he would be paid as third in command, that the Menardy group was very badly organised, and anyhow, he decided to spend some time with his wife, some 14 miles away. Eventually, one of his men, in complete frustration, rode to Melbourne and explained the situation. The committee denied ever having received any communication from Wright and gave this chap £400 in cash immediately to buy provisions and ordered Wright to rejoin Burke immediately. When he met Bray, three of his men had already died of scurvy and he was about to return to Melbourne. Bray suggested to Wright that they should make a quick trip to Cooper's Creek to see if there was any sign of Burke and his party. And so on the 8th of May, that was the day that Burke was slicing up his last camel, they arrived again at 65 LXV. They saw the signs of Burke and Will's campfires, but assumed they'd been lit by Aborigines. They saw camel tracks, but assumed they'd been made by Bray's camels. They saw the rake leaning against a tree, but Bray thought he must have left it there. They didn't dig up the cache of food for fear of leaving freshly dug earth, which might indicate where food was left, to the Aborigines. And so after 15 minutes at the camp, they returned southwards. At this moment, Burke and Wills were just 30 miles away. Now we return to Burke, King and Wills. The Aborigines who'd helped them moved on, as is their way. They had stock of dried meat and there was plenty of nardoo to pick. It was a sort of fern, rather like a four-leafed clover. And although they didn't have uh, their camels, they could cover a reasonable distance every day. Surely they'd find a waterhole somewhere. But after travelling 45 miles southwest towards Mount Hopeless, they still hadn't found one. So they turned back. 24th of May, whilst following the course of Cooper's Creek, on the way back, they heard a gunshot. This could only mean a rescue party were out looking for them. Wills, at that time, was the strongest of the three, and he set out for 65 as fast as possible. But when he arrived back, nobody was there. It turned out afterwards that the sound they'd both thought was gunfire was a large section of rock face falling away. Underneath the tree where it said dig, Wills buried his journals and a letter in which he wrote, Both camels are dead and our provisions are done. We're trying to live as best we can, but find it hard to work. Our clothes are going to pieces fast. Send provisions and clothes as soon as possible. He then went back to Burke and King. By the third week of June, the three were fading fast. The Aborigines had returned and then totally disappeared one night. It took all their energy to collect and pound the Nardu seeds on which they depended. What little was left of their clothes afforded no protection at all against the blazing sun or the violent thunderstorms or the cold nights. 21st of June, Wills wrote, Unless relief comes in some form or other, I cannot possibly last more than a fortnight. It's a great consolation, at least in this position of ours, to know we have done all we could and that our deaths will be the result of mismanagement of others than of any rash act of our own. Clearly, their only hope lay in finding the Aborigines and getting help. Wills, so recently the strongest of the three, was now clearly the weakest. He could no longer collect Nardu. He insisted on Burke and King going on to get help. This was their last, albeit slender, chance of survival. With a few bits of firewood and a few Nardu cakes, 
He could last a few days uh, that he expected them to be away. What difference would it make, he said. If they didn't return, he would die. If they didn't go, he'd die anyway. On the 27th of June, he wrote a final letter to his father, saying, amongst other things, These are probably the last lines you will ever get from me. We're on the point of starvation. I think to live about four or five days. My spirits are excellent. On the 28th of June, Burke and King left, but within a couple of days, Burke was too weak to continue. Like Wills, he wrote a letter for posterity saying, I hope we shall be done justice to. We have fulfilled our task, but we have been abandoned. He asked King to put his revolver into his, Burke's, right hand. Then, knowing how weak King was, insisted that he should not be buried. Burke never used the gun. He died on the 30th of June of starvation. King pressed on alone. Two days later, King discovered a deserted Aborigine camp and a supply of Nardu. He also shot four crows. After a short rest, he went back to Wills with the food, but when he arrived, he discovered that Wills had died. Whilst nobody knows for sure, it's very probable that his death was no more than 24 hours before King arrived, at the most. As he was burying his companion, he noticed that some of his clothes had gone missing. The Aborigines they'd been looking for, and might have saved them, had been in the area all along. For a while, King, in a state of shock, just stayed there, then followed the tracks of the Aborigines, shooting crows to supplement his diet. It was the sound of gunfire that had attracted the Aborigine tribe. They, they led King back to their camp, fed him and let him go with them when they moved on. King wrote later, They treated me with uniform kindness and looked on me as one of themselves. In the event, he stayed with them for about two months. Bray, by now, was back in action. The Royal Society of Victoria was alarmed at the news he'd given them of Burke's incompetence and the fact that there was no sign of the expedition returning and had set up no less than four search parties to find them. By both land and sea, they decided that the explorers must be at the Gulf of Carpentaria or waiting for rescue at a waterhole somewhere in the interior of Australia. There was no particular reason to believe that Burke and his party might be at Cooper's Creek, but it was decided to send one of the search parties there anyway. A local businessman and geologist, Alfred Howitt, was selected to lead this particular search party, and he was to be accompanied by Bray and seven others. They left Melbourne on the 9th of July, and just over two months later, on the 13th of September, were at Camp 65. There was no sign of anything being different from the previous time Bray had been there, except for signs that Aborigines had passed through. The dig message looked the same, and the cache of food did not appear to have been disturbed. Had they opened it, they'd have found the letters from both Burke and Wills, but they didn't. As Howitt later said, why should they, as they knew it contained food and they had plenty? They moved off down the creek, and two days later... 15th of September, one of the party, a surveyor named Welch, stumbled across the Aborigines, who scattered, leaving a solitary white man in tatters of clothes and part of a hat. It was King. As Welch said, it tottered, it threw up its hands in an attitude of prayer, and it fell to the ground. When Howitt got to the scene, he was appalled. 
He said, King presented a melancholy appearance. <laughs> they, they love this understatement, don't they? <laughs> yes, a melancholy appearance. He was wasted to a shadow and hardly to be distinguished as a civilised being, but for the remains of clothes upon him. He seemed exceedingly weak and found it occasionally difficult to follow what we said. The natives were all gathered round, seated on the ground by then, looking with a most gratified and delighted expression. While King was being fed spoonfuls of rice, sugar and butter, the surgeon checked him over and stated that in his condition he couldn't possibly have survived more than two or maybe three days. During the next few weeks, Howitt and Bray visited each of the graves, returned to Depot 65, then returned to Melbourne with Will's journals and the damning letters from Cashett Cooper's Creek. A royal commission was set up to investigate what had gone wrong. Nobody was found blameless, but nobody was found guilty either. The main conclusion was that Burke had done as he was instructed. He'd explored the route from Melbourne north to the Gulf. He'd found no sign of the great inland seas or lakes, no huge grassy plains, no reason for people to build big new cities there. The Royal Commission made no comment on whether somebody else might have done the job better or without the loss of life, nor did it state that Stuart had travelled much further across the inhospitable Northern Territory than Burke and Wills and had discovered a great deal more. But nowadays, it's Burke and Wills who are remembered for their daring expedition, not Stuart. The territory is nowadays colonised by ranchers and the fateful expedition is part of the legend of Australia.